It's the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. J.C. Sherbert here with you along with Tony Morrell uh, on a Wednesday in mid-October. And, uh, Tony, gosh, I, I don't even know what to say about this game. I've talked about it so much the last few days. I don't know that I can say anything else, but for our podcast audience here, I'll probably repeat some things. But, man, I think it's obvious that was the biggest win of the Muschamp era, South Carolina defeating Georgia 20-17 to in double overtime. I think it's one of the biggest wins in school history going on the road and beating a top three team. I think, you know, it's – in my opinion, it's been debatable whether or not Georgia's a top three team for most of the year. But but, but the bottom line is they were. Um, I, I think that these days in college football, when you beat a team like Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, you know, the, te- the teams that tend to make the playoffs now, uh, that says something. So, you know, quite a victory, uh, a gutty performance. Um Gamecocks also, as Steve Spurrier used to like to say, got some pretty good fortune uh, in the ball game. And um, all of a sudden now this season is taking on a, a kind of a new dynamic. It's, it's, a, it's a situation where uh, things are not as dire as they were a couple of weeks ago and things actually could end up being pretty good uh, if the Gamecocks continue to play like they're playing. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I, I think it was a, a huge win for South Carolina's program overall. A huge win for Will Muschamp and, and his coaching staff. Yeah, they were obviously feeling some heat earlier in the season with the way things had gone. And, um, you know, for them to to bring a team into Sanford Stadium that was that prepared coming off a of bye week was a very positive thing. Uh, they were obviously excited to be there and believe they could win from the minute they stepped on the field at Sanford Stadium. And, and um, you know, they were – the more physical team. They were the team that wanted it more, and that's what they they had to have going into that game. That's the only way you're going to beat a team like Georgia, particularly on the road, um, is if you want it more and your your players are more physical and, and are setting the tone. And and I thought South Carolina's defensive line really was probably the group that set the tone the best right off the bat. And uh, and then I think the rest of the defense fed off of that, and then you know the offense did just enough. I got to give you credit, man, because I, I think that. You know, and, and you, you did a good job of explaining this on the podcast last week and, and, and writing about it on thebigspur.com. But, you know, you come in and you know, South Carolina, Georgia, and you're like, be the more physical team. And people, you know, people kind of equate Georgia with physical football. At the very least, they're physical. I don't know that they play as smart or as clean as some other programs, but they are a very physical team. And so it was – I don't want to say it was bizarre, but it was a, it was a different kind of take, but you were absolutely right. You know, not saying they have to out-physical them, but be the more physical team um, in the ball game. And South Carolina certainly was. I think especially, especially uh, on the defensive line. Uh, you know, I think we've kind of been waiting around for a better defensive line here for a few years. You've made the point a couple of times that, you know, South Carolina hadn't been able to generate a pass rush. Um, you know, quarterbacks, have, I think you said one of them, I think it was Missouri could have had a picnic back there and, and stuff yeah. for the lack of um, lack of pass rush. I, you know, I think we both know that these guys are capable. I mean, it's not like they hadn't been capable. And, and boy, they got after Jake Fromm uh, on Saturday. I, and Georgia threw it 51 times for whatever reason. But um, I think that says a lot. And I think we're seeing the, the front, you know, the defensive front in general – uh, playing a whole lot better, and, and I think the Gamecocks are getting pressure. From From had only been sacked one time 
coming into that football game. Gamecocks got to him three times. Uh, on the pick six by Mukwamu, that was a, you know, pressure caused that. Uh, and the Gamecocks were, you know, right in his face just about the entire football game. Yeah, they were. And he also had thrown no interceptions coming into that game. And, and you know, South Carolina gets him three times, all three by Israel Mukwamu, who had a career game uh, on Saturday against Georgia. But, you know, I think Javon Kinlaw is the, the guy that makes this defense go. Uh, he's the, the leader of the defense. He's the, the best player on the defensive line. He's been the best player on defense for South Carolina all year. And, and I thought he made himself some money. Uh, on Saturday against Georgia, against that offensive line. Uh, you figure there were a number of NFL scouts who were in attendance at that game, even more, uh, who will be watching the, the the film of that game. And to see Javon Kinlaw really dominate Georgia's offensive line on a lot of different plays. There was you know one play in particular where he pushed two uh, Georgia offensive linemen into the backfield and just blew the, the play up. So even when they double teamed him, he was still making plays. And I thought the the rest of the defensive linemen like Kobe Smith and, uh, you know, uh, DJ Wanham, uh, J.J. Nagbare, Rick Sandage, you know, they just seemed to feed off what Ken Law was doing. And the pressure that defensive line was was generating was making life tough on Jake Fromm and, and allowing the secondary to make some of the plays they made. So, uh, you know, I don't I don't I think just about any great defense or, or great defensive performance it all starts up front. And, and it's the second week in a row South Carolina has gotten a lot of production from their defensive line. And if they can get it again this week against Florida, it's going to really uh, help their chances to pull off the upset. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of a good defense without a good defensive line. I just, you know, maybe an average one, but no, really it does. It starts up front. Um, and, and I'm with you, you know, Kobe Smith and Rick Sandage in particular. And I, I even saw some nice things out of Zach Pickens when I was looking uh, – looking at the, the game again. Um, that's a nice little rotation. You know, Rick Sandage sort of got off to a slow, slower start this year or didn't play a lot or didn't have the opportunity to. But, boy, he came in there and made a great play against the run in the backfield. And, you know, South Carolina really, you know, they were – they did not have many plays where they were just dominated by, by what I think is one of the best offensive lines in college football. I mean, those guys uh, on the Georgia offensive line, you know, they've got some – they got some dudes, as people like to say, uh, and as a unit, they've been dominant this year. So I, I think that's a very positive thing uh, for the Gamecocks moving forward. I, I, th I think too they've sort of solidified the linebacker position in some ways. And it, I, I, I said last week, I don't know that we'd all have been sitting around going, you know what they should do. I mean, think back to last year, you know, and, and just say, hey, you know, the Gamecocks defense is going to be kind of struggling the first four games. What do you think they, they're going to need to do at that point in time? I, I don't think anybody would have been like, you know, let's get Sherrod Green on the field more and play more linebackers. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know that that would have been uh, what the answer would have been. But, hey, it, it hasn't. It worked. And I, and I tell you, Sherrod Green is playing well. And I think that's caused T.J. Brunson to sort of settle in at the will linebacker position. And I think Brunson had his best game Saturday. And Ernest Jones, Tony, to me – just gets better and better and better and better each and every week. Uh, you know, of course, Ernest Jones is from Georgia, so that was a big win for him, you know, here in his second year at South Carolina. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think all of a sudden, lo and behold, you know, that group as a unit 
is playing pretty doggone well. And, you know, again, heading into this weekend, you need good linebacker play, disciplined linebacker play when you play Florida. But, man, I, th- I think there's a lot to be said, you know, for, for those, those guys in the starting unit, especially when you consider, you know, Brunson and Green both were part of the team last year, took a lot of heat and probably didn't play their best at times and probably didn't play their best uh, in Brunson's case at the beginning of the year. Seems like that's, a, that's something that's kind of coming on too. Yeah, there's no question the linebacker play has improved. And, and, and again, I think that at least partially goes back to the increased production from the defensive line. It makes life so much easier on the linebackers when the defensive line is doing its job in front of them to occupy blockers or to, to get penetration to change the direction of plays. And, uh, you know, just there's just it creates scenarios where there's less blockers for the linebackers to have to deal with and frees them up to make more plays. And I would agree with you on on all three of those guys. You know, Sherrod Green is, is probably the most improved player on the defensive side of the ball so far for South Carolina from last year to this year. You know, he's he's in position a lot more often and he's he's just been so much better in the tackling department. Uh, than he was last year because there were a lot of times last year where he could have made plays he was there and he just meets the tackles and, and this year he's he's you know in position more often and, and he's making the tackle when he gets there uh, Ernest Jones from a, a mental standpoint reminds me somewhat of Shaq Wilson um, you know, in, in terms of his ability to diagnose plays quickly and anticipate what the defense is going to do and he just really has a, a tremendous understanding of the game, and you can tell that he he knows where everybody is supposed to be. And, and it's rare for a player that young, uh, you know, a true sophomore who really didn't play much last year, played in five games and you know limited number of snaps in those games. So uh, he really has come on in year two. And then T.J. Brunson, you know, looked a little bit like a fish out of water in the first couple of games at outside linebacker. You know, was out of position some, really didn't make a lot of plays. But I think as he's gotten more experience in game situations playing outside, he's getting better and better and uh, really made a lot of plays against Georgia. And and, uh, and I think that that group just seems to be getting more and more confident and more and more productive with each passing game. Yeah, and I said that a lot last year too. Um, not so much in Green's case, but in Brunson's case. I mean, there were times where you could just tell it was – frustrating for him because South Carolina just wasn't getting it done up front. The Florida game last year kind of comes to mind with that. Um, and, and, you know, here's the thing, too, about Green. Green played Sam linebacker, which is what he's playing mostly now uh, as a freshman. And I thought he looked pretty good. You know, maybe the will just wasn't like – wasn't his bag of tea. You know, I, I think that, you know, moving him back to Sam this year has helped. And he even played some Mike when Ernest Jones had to go out of the game – late with an injury um so you know maybe that's just uh maybe that's just what he is i mean i don't know sometimes those linebacker spots seem to be interchangeable but sometimes guys are just more comfortable on one side or the other um you mentioned mukwamu uh obviously you know we've all kind of been talking about him for a while i know the coaching staff loved him at corner Uh, i know that he's built you know physically when you look at his measurables more like a safety but Tony, I think we we saw Saturday what a guy with that kind of length, when he's playing with confidence and, and in the right position, you know, what he can do. I mean, the, the pick six, he jumps up and gets it. You know, obviously it, his height helped him there. Then there was a couple of, like, basketball-type plays uh, that he made uh, on the tip and then the other one in overtime. But, you know, I, I've said – I said all week last week, when South Carolina has beaten Georgia in Athens since they have been in the SEC – 
there's always a heroic performance or two. You know, you look in 93 with Brandon Bennett, 01 with Brian Scott. You know, 07, you could probably give that to Tyrone Nix and that defense. 2011, probably too many to talk about, but Melvin Ingram certainly had a good day that day, um, as did Marcus Lattimore. Uh, and, uh, you know, this year the hero was, was Mukwamu. There were a lot of good performances, but, you know, sometimes it takes a, a special individual performance uh, if you kind of look at the history, and, and, and that was him. Uh, on Saturday, and and I think that's only going to help him, you know, continue to play confident, which I think is very important for a young defensive back. And and given his physicality and athleticism and and what he can do, uh, he can end up being a monster, I I think, back there uh, if things continue like they – if if things progress like they are. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's – he really played a complete game because not only did he have the three interceptions and and really match up well with George's receivers, but he also tackled really well and was uh, instrumental in in keeping some of those running gate running plays that Georgia had early on from from you know turning into to twenty thirty yard gains uh, and and that's something that really hurt South Carolina last year in this matchup was their ability to make people miss and, and break tackles and, and pick up yards after contact. And that really didn't happen in this game. And, and Mukwama was, was part of the reason why that didn't happen. So, um, you know, I think you saw him grow up to some degree two weeks ago against Kentucky or two games ago against Kentucky. He, could, he really played well. The, old, the entire secondary played well in that game. And I think that carried over to the Georgia game. You know, one of the things we talked about on the site leading up to the game and, and also I think on the podcast last week was that Georgia really had not shown much of a down-the-field passing game uh, so far this season. And, and I think you saw why against South Carolina. They don't really have that threat. They don't have the guys that are uh, can run by you and, and really make you uh, want to play off uh, the the defense or excuse me off the receivers at the line of scrimmage and and give give them his underneath stuff so uh, and I, I thought that that Mikwamo played great and you know late in the game yeah I don't know if you've watched the replay or if you watched it on TV but you know Dan Orlovsky was you know saying don't throw at 24 I'd go at JC Horn on the other side I'd throw at JC Horn well if you if you're going at JC Horn I like South Carolina's chances against most teams. Uh, I think you know he's been the most consistent cornerback for them, and if if you create a scenario where where teams feel like they have to throw away from Aguamo and go towards Horn, I think South Carolina's going to win that matchup more often than not, and uh, and I think it really bodes well for the the future of the secondary with those two guys really kind of growing up before our eyes this season. Yeah, and I'll tell you who else played well, and 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 it's almost not like right before the missed field goal in the second overtime. Um, Georgia threw a pass that was in the end zone right at the pylon to Robertson, and J.B. Robinson was down there in coverage. Now, he may have had his hands on him a little bit, but they didn't call it, and that was good. I know he had the hold on fourth down that gave them new life in in regulation, uh, you know, which was a mistake, and it was a hold. But I think for a true freshman, Tony, that's a guy that's, you know, he works at safety, he works at nickel, you know, he, he's a guy that's good in coverage, probably not the, you know, not probably more parts of his game are stronger than that. You know, in that situation with the game on the line, to go down there and cover a guy like Robertson who's, you know, been around college football for a while, I think that was tremendous. I mean, and, and that probably gets lost because things happen so quick. I mean, it was almost like everybody's kind of holding their breath, Georgia doesn't score. Uh, and then they're going to kick a field goal. I think everybody assumes game's going to another overtime, and then he misses it, and then all of a sudden the game's over. And that that's kind of a play that got lost to me a little bit. 
And then Robert Robinson's overall play, you know, probably starting with Kentucky, maybe a little bit in the Missouri game as well, uh, I think has been very good. And, and he's another guy, you know, as a true freshman, again, from the state of Georgia, uh, growing up kind of right before our eyes. And, and I thought he was physically ready to come in and play. Uh, in other words, there, there's probably guys like Cam Smith that have a bigger upside um, that may end up, you know, being better in time. But I thought Robinson was a guy that, you know, He's kind of ready to just – ready to roll. Uh, and he's shown that. And I think in that situation against the Bulldogs, you know, there's a lot of freshmen that would have probably choked or lost the guy in coverage, but he was right there. And, you know, it wasn't a great thrown ball, but it was a ball that could have been complete. And, you know, Robinson had the coverage there and obviously caused uh, a little bit of, of the incompletion. Yeah, you know, Jamie Robinson is one of those guys that just has the it factor from a confidence standpoint and a body language standpoint. And, and I, you know, I think that's, that's so important. And I think that's especially for a defensive back. And, you know, I had a, a, a source inside the Gamecock program tell me that Jamie Robinson was a pro back in fall practice just in the way he carries himself with his abilities. And just, um, you know, reminds me a little bit of DJ Swearinger in that regard. You know, Swearinger always – just his body language just oozed confidence and he, he knew where he was supposed to be on every play and uh you know was ready to to make plays whenever possible and i think robinson's gonna you know develop into that same kind of guy and uh, like you said he's versatile he can play nickel he can play safety and he's just one of those guys that that makes plays so and he isn't scared to match up with with whoever he's matched up with he he you know he's not intimidated he's not uh, a guy who's backing off the line of scrimmage because he thinks he's going to get beat. He's moving towards the line of scrimmage because he thinks he can get physical and and uh, really you know match up with someone one on one. So uh, I really like what I've seen from him so far and, and feel like he has a very bright future. Yeah, I think the sky's the limit with him and and, and you know versatility wise and uh, you're right about that confidence. I mean, he, you know, he was six, the six A Georgia High School Player of the Year as a senior uh, and went to a new high school. You know, sometimes guys go to new, new high schools as seniors and they, yeah, they don't really – if they got scholarship offers and stuff, they don't really go out and blow you away on the high school football field. But he obviously was one of the best high school players in the state of Georgia. And, you know, his recruitment was a long and winding road to the obvious. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that was, uh, that was an interesting recruitment. I, I, thought, uh, I thought Auburn may snag him there for a little bit, but uh, – he was always South Carolina, and that was, that was really interesting. But uh, he played well as well. All right, so I've got a little theory here. Uh, Will Muschamp has an unshakable confidence in Parker White. I, I just <laughs> – I, I wrote that down, unshakable confidence. I mean, the 57-yard attempt, uh, you know, that kind of got a lot of people – Blew him up a little bit about that with 40 seconds to go in the game, but it didn't cost him. And White did make a 50-yarder. And Muschamp, you know, he'll run him out there in a heartbeat. Uh, and, and, and so here's my theory about that. And I think everybody, you know, regardless of what the opinion is out there about this, because uh, I, I kind of think it's a little overblown, but everybody saw Dabo Sweeney just blow B.T. Potter up on the sidelines for Clemson over the weekend, and he caught some heat. But you never see Muschamp do that with White, and, you know, White misses some field goals sometimes, and obviously the one in the first overtime was uh, not good. That was not a positive development. Um, but then he went out there and, uh, you know, kicked it in the second and was fine. So, 
you know, my question for you is, I, I, I think that it's a lot like playing golf. You know, I, I think when you're dealing with a kicker or somebody that wants to putt, you know, trying to teach them to putt better or whatever, I don't think you scream at them and yell at them and berate them. I just think you, you have an like I have a big confidence in them, and, and I think it allows them to calm down. Um, and kicking uh, in college football, I think, is is kind of a quiet deal amidst the chaos. Uh, and I think that makes Parker White, you know, somewhat clutch in situations. I know he probably felt really bad about missing the 33-yarder in the first overtime, but lo and behold, he wins the game. And and I'll just say this, I, I expect Will Muschamp to roll him out there for some 50-plus yarders more this season and, and for the entire time White's at South Carolina. And, and I think that, you know, you, you can debate whether or not it was the right move from a coaching football strategy standpoint, but I think as far as Parker White's confidence, you know, I think how Muschamp and the staff handles him uh, has been a, a positive much more than a negative. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, I don't think there's anything to gain by braiding a kicker or, you know, doing anything to, to shake his confidence because, you know, it, it's very much a, a, a position that requires confidence. If the, if the kicker is not confident, I don't care what kind of leg he has or uh, you know, what kind of talent he has, he's not going to be consistent. You know, those guys have to be uh, confident when they step on the field. They have to be consistent with their routine. They have to pick their target and kick to it. And, and there are a lot of similarities between being a kicker and playing golf. And, uh, and I think Muschamp handles him really well. He knew he was putting him in a tough situation when he ran him out there for the, the 57, 58-yarder. You know, on one hand, you say uh, you probably should have either gone for it or punted there. But on the other hand, uh, the long field goal that he made earlier in the half would have been good from 60-plus. So you know he has the leg to do it, you know, whether he can do it in that scenario to, you know, to win a game on the road in the SEC against the number three team in the country. You, know, you don't find out until you put him out there and give him that chance. So – you know, he gave him the opportunity. It didn't work out. And, and like you said, he missed the other one in the first overtime, but uh, ended up getting the game winner in the end. And, and as the years passed, most people won't even remember that he missed that one in the first uh, overtime. They'll just remember that South Carolina won the game. And, and I think it's good for, for Parker White himself going forward because he doesn't have to beat himself up for missing that kick now because South Carolina still won the game. And, and, and I have a feeling he's going to get a – uh, more opportunities throughout his career to win some games for South Carolina, and it's more likely to come through for them if if the head coach is sticking by him the way Muschamp is and, and treats him the way he does. Yeah, speaking of the head coach, so when when things were not good, uh, I think I said this on the Big Spur, you know, I, I thought maybe Muschamp, especially after the North Carolina game, I thought Muschamp maybe needed to get involved with the defense a little more than he already is in terms of the, the game, in-game calling. Um and, you know, he started wearing the glasses, and I don't know if that's some sideline symbolism there or not, you know. But the last two games, the defense has looked schematically, you know, the calls they make against things. I mean, they, they look like they're in the right position. They know where they're going. They know what they're doing. And when you watch it, it looks like Muschamp is indeed, you know, play-to-play you know, more involved. Now, you had some information earlier this week on the Big Spur that, you know, sort of backed that up a little bit. Um, what's your take on that? I think Will Muschamp is an excellent defensive play caller and defensive mind. Um, and obviously things weren't going as well 
at the beginning of the year, and now all of a sudden you look at it and, you know, they are. I mean, they seem to just be in the right position. I know they're playing better, but I also think there's something to be said for, you know, how they're calling it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he's always been very involved with the defense, very vocal with the coaches throughout, you know, every defensive possession. Uh, and has been very involved in what Travaris Robinson and the, and the coaches call it on defense. But if you go back and watch games prior to this, you didn't see him with the game sheet, the play sheet in his hand, his reading glasses on and, and you know, looking at it prior or after every play. Uh, so there's definitely been a change in the dynamic there, and, and it, has, it has absolutely paid off for them. You know, we talked about in, in earlier podcasts that, that South Carolina's defense is – their defense just did not look like what you expect when Will Muschamp is the head coach of your team. They weren't disruptive. They weren't playing fast. They weren't physical. Uh, they weren't pressuring the passer. All of those things have changed the last two games uh, against Kentucky and Georgia, and, and they are doing all of those things. They are disrupting. They are generating turnovers. They are pressuring the passer. They are getting off the field on third down, although there were some issues there against Georgia, but that's going to happen against the number three team on the road. You're, you know, they're going to convert some first downs on, on third down. But you know, overall, the last two weeks since Muschamp has put on the, the reading glasses and, and had the play sheet in hand, uh, the defense has, has played significantly better. And if they can continue to do that with, with him calling the plays, it obviously needs to continue. And I don't want to create a scenario like we had throughout most of the Steve Spurrier era when there was always a question of, you know, is he calling the plays on offense? Is Spurrier Jr. calling him? Is G.A. Mangas calling him? What's going on? And, 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 and people would, would change their opinion, you know, based on how the, the offense played that week. If they didn't play well, well, that means Junior was calling the plays. And if they call, if they played really well, that means Spurrier was, was calling the plays. But, uh, but I do think Will Muschamp, uh, it was known as one of the best defensive coordinators in college football for years prior to becoming a head coach. It's what he knows. It's what he does best. And you know, I, I think it makes all the sense in the world for him to take on that role at South Carolina and, and be the guy that, that they live and die with on that side of the ball because uh, I don't think there's any question he's the, the brightest defensive mind in the room and, uh, and the guy that, that's been through you know, battle after battle in the SEC and knows what it takes to, to be a good defense in this conference. Yeah, he's got a good sense of it too, I think. You know, a lot of calling the defense is just anticipating what the other guy's going to do and how they're going to get to it and all that. And, you know, he did this a lot his first two years at South Carolina. You could see it in the play sheet he was calling, especially the first year when, quite frankly, um, they kind of put that defense together with, with duct tape and, and chewing gum, <laughs> you know, that, that year because you didn't have much in the secondary and not much on the line. That, that defensive line was a year away and stuff. And uh, it, it's good to see him back doing that. And I think that the guys, the players have responded pretty well. And, yeah, you don't want to get in that situation with Spurrier. I remember some of those Spurrier games, there were games that he would call it and things wouldn't go well. And then – you know, someone else would call it. They would, you know, it, it would be just the opposite. So that wouldn't be a pretty, that wouldn't be a good scenario. But you know, he's. I think it's a little different because Muschamp always is involved with the D. But I think play to play, you know, it, it helps the entire organization, as they like to say. All right, some unsung heroes for the game, Tony. I'm going to go with two guys. I mentioned Kobe Smith earlier. I, I think 
he's playing his best ball as a senior. I thought at the end of last year it was hard to tell, but individually he really came on. Again, another kid from the state of Georgia, you know, hanging in there, uh, fighting off double teams, things like that, just like Ken Law did. Uh, and I'm going to go on off. I'm going to go with Nick Muse. I thought Nick Muse in two crucial situations made two really good plays. The, the first one was in the first half. He caught a pass over the middle, made some people miss, showed some good escapability and athleticism. And then the pass he caught from Joyner late in the game that allowed the Gamecocks to kind of extend the drive and get down the field a little bit, that's huge. Even though Carolina didn't score on that drive, you know, you're keeping Georgia's offense off the field. and You got Joyner in there at quarterback and, you know, Georgia's trying to come win the game or whatever. I thought that catch was uh, really, really good. And when you watch Nick Muse, I, I think that as the season goes on and on and on, and we were told when they took him as a transfer from William & Mary, which caused an internet meltdown for two days, uh, that they thought this kid could play in the NFL. I'm in agreement. I, I, you know, the more I watch him athletically in the open field, and now that he's catching passes more consistently and things like that, you know, I think this guy could be a weapon and as we move forward can continue – uh, to be a big part of the passing game just because he he is a step faster than Mark Way and more elusive and athletic and really could be a guy. So, Kobe Smith and Nick Muse would be my guys. Yeah, those are two good choices, and I agree on Muse. You don't see too many guys that's you know, 6'5", 250 pounds who can stick their foot in the ground and make someone miss the way Muse can after he makes a catch. And, and he's shown that against multiple teams this season and, and I think is only going to get better and better as he gets more experience and more touches. And I'm not sure we've seen just how good he can be. I, I think he's going to make some, some, some really big plays before his career is over at South Carolina. And Kobe Smith's a good choice as well. Another guy I would mention is Jalen Nichols uh, at right tackle on the offensive line. You know, a guy that's – you know, really was not expected to be playing at this point in his career. He, he takes over for, for Dylan Wanham, probably the best offensive lineman on South Carolina's team, takes over at right tackle uh, against Kentucky and, and holds up pretty well, and, and then goes on the road against Georgia in the next game. And, and really, you know, South Carolina had, I don't know, six false start penalties maybe over the course of the game. None of them were on Nichols. He, you know, held up against some really athletic and talented defensive ends and, and linebackers for Georgia and, and it wasn't perfect by any means but you don't expect it to be when you put a true freshman out there at right tackle against a team like Georgia but uh, you know he held up pretty well all things considered and, and I thought you know did a good job of, of not allowing Georgia to to exploit that weakness on the offensive line. Georgia had zero sacks zero yep yep now now look they got after Joyner a little bit, and Joyner did a Houdini act back there and, and you know, got after, got, got down the field um, in the second half. But, you know, they didn't sack – I mean, they hit Holinsky several times. They didn't sack him. So, I, I think any time you can get zero sacks at Sanford Stadium against you, you're, you're doing something good, uh, especially with that bunch. All right, so – we're going to talk about the game this weekend, but first I want to get to a little recruiting news. So – there's not much going on in recruiting right now. I think, uh, you know, there's there's visits being made and, and all that. You know, Jordan Birch obviously was at the game Saturday, which I think was a, a good thing for him to watch the Gamecocks beat one of his other finalists. Um, I don't know if that will get them back in. I still think they trail a little bit there, but uh, it can only help. 
But the linebacker position, Tony, we've talked about Leneth Whitehead on the – or I think it's pronounced Leneth or Leneth. Leneth? It's actually, it's actually Leneth. Leneth Whitehead. Leneth yeah. Whitehead. Okay, I feel like I'm – okay, Leneth. Leneth Whitehead. So, Leneth Whitehead and Desmond Tisdall. So, I think we've been kind of projecting Whitehead to South Carolina for a couple of weeks now. Then, lo and behold – uh, the Desmond Tisdall thing pops up, and he's going to make a decision soon or something like that. So just kind of break all this down. You know, are they going to take both? What, how, how, what kind of scenarios could unfold with this thing? I think they're both really good players, uh, to be honest with you. And um, both are players that could help the program. But, you know, obviously space is getting tight uh, and space is limited. So how do you see this kind of this thing kind of playing out? Well, you know, they, they've gotten to the point in the process with, with only four spots left in this class where they, they're going to take the best available players. And it's not necessarily, uh, you know, we have to have one defensive back. We need one linebacker. We need one running back. It, it's, it's more of we want the best available players we can get to close out this class. Uh, the other part of that equation is academics. And, you know, earlier in the week I, I checked on the Desmond Tindall uh, scenario and and was told they would you know sounded like they would probably take him but monitor his ac- his academics and and may not sign him uh, unless they they knew for sure that he was going to qualify. Uh, I did some more checking today uh, when it came out that Tisdall could announce as soon as later this week, and was told that South Carolina is probably not going to take him at this point in the process because of his academic situation. So, um, and I'm also told they they've made him and, and his his family and coaches aware of that. So, if he does commit to someone on Friday, uh, I don't think it'll be South Carolina based on what I have to go on today. Uh, I think South Carolina is in a great position with Whitehead. I think if he was making his decision today, it would be South Carolina. Uh, I think Wisconsin is the only team right now who could upset the apple cart a little bit. They're recruiting him solely as a running back and are selling them on selling him on you know the success they've had with with big running backs like him, putting several guys into the NFL over the years, and and they feel like he's a very good fit with what they do offensively. Um, I, in the end, though, I think it's probably going to be too far from home. He's really close with his mom. I'm not sure he's fired up about the weather up there. And, and I think South Carolina is in a, in a really good position with him. And, and their win over Georgia on Saturday only furthered that lead. Yeah. And Whitehead, for those of you that don't follow it closely, is from Athens, Georgia. So he, he definitely heard about that game. And I think he was actually there as a, as a visitor he was there. for UGA. So that had to help the Gamecocks. Uh, with that situation. Yeah, Tis- Tisdall may be a guy, too, that, you know, nobody really wants to talk about the academics on his end. And, and maybe maybe that, you know, some of the folks that are kind of pushing him to commit here, there, and yonder don't really understand the process a whole lot about the grades because, you know, keeps, we keep seeing, you know, ah, I'm going to commit. Oh, never mind, all that good stuff. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I'm with you. I, I agree to- totally about, you know, right now going with best best you can get. And, and, and I'll say another thing, see if you agree with me here or not. I think with the transfer portal, Tony, and the grad transfer system and the way that works, and until the NCAA or whoever comes off of the 25, you can only sign 25, and you have to count transfers and everything – until they come off of that a little bit, um, 
you know, I, I think what they're doing is absolutely the right thing to do because, you know, you look at 2021, you're going to have some scholarships. The state is down. Um, you can count some guys forward, you know, with, with maybe some needs for next year by signing some grad transfers or getting some transfers in. Um because there's a lot, a lot available. There's a lot of guys available these days. And so I, I agree with how they're handling it. You know, as long as the 25 is there, you can't afford to, to take a risk on a guy that doesn't have, uh, doesn't have grades because, you know, you sign him, he counts towards the, the letter of intent deal. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's a different world right now with, with the rules they have in place. And, and I think this coaching staff gets it. I think they've got a, done a good job of adjusting um, – you know, each year as rules have changed, they've adjusted their plan and, and the way they go about things. But uh, they've been very thorough in recruiting, and, and uh, I don't see that changing. Uh, and I think they they understand how important it is to, to take guys who are going to qualify. And you don't have to look any further than Florida. Last year, I think there were seven guys, if I'm not mistaken, in their, their 2019 class who, who never made it to campus. And and like you said, they, they can't replace those guys. So um, I think Dan Mullen – is a really good game day coach. He, he typically has his teams prepared and, 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 you know, knows how to play the chess match over the course of a game. But I'm still, I still have questions about his ability to run a disciplined program and to manage his roster and, and, and do things the way they have to be done to, to build a program long term. So it's going to be interesting to see how things go down in Gainesville. But I think, you know, Will Muschamp and his staff fully understands you know, what you have to do to take advantage of the rules and, and not put yourself in a hole that you can't dig out of over time. Yeah, I agree. And, and old Mullen, too, at Mississippi State, people don't – people probably don't realize this. He had an assistant coach named Tony Hughes who was a long, long time he – was a, he was at Southern Miss for like a long time, whole high school coach. Um, he's the guy you want on your staff if you're going to recruit the state of Mississippi. I think he had them very organized and together. Uh, at Mississippi State and recruiting beyond what Mullen was doing, you know. And obviously they needed to be because you had few Freeze at Ole Miss and, you know, other teams like Alabama and LSU coming to that state. I don't I don't see where he has that at Florida. And, you know, in today's day and age, you know, it's inexcusable to sign seven guys that don't qualify. I mean, you just can't, you know, I just – I don't know. How, and then, you know, of course, Chris Steele hightailed it out of there and everything else. But – um so, anyway, uh, and one more thing to your point about the staff knowing how to manage transfers. Another really great thing about this past weekend, because there have been some transfers that maybe hadn't done much, like Nick Harvey comes to mind. I know Jamel Cook's struggling to get on the field right now. But Tavian Feaster, JT Bay, and Nick Muse, who we mentioned earlier, all had solid games Saturday. I thought eBay played really well, all things considered. And Feaster – Although he didn't have big yards, you know, on that third and 15 draw play, you know, he busted it up in there and went for 17 in the first down. So I think that's a positive thing. Another positive thing about the game. All right, turning the page. This is a huge game this weekend, Tony. Uh, I, I felt this way two weeks ago, and I feel this way still. I, I thought it was a, you know, in terms of what it means for South Carolina, going to be a bigger game than Georgia um, either way. In terms of what it means right now, you know, obviously every year Georgia's a, one of the biggest, probably second biggest game on the schedule outside of Clemson. But I felt like lose the Georgia game, you're two and four. You know, you're if you're two and five going to Knoxville, the negativity is going to be unbelievable. If you drop that game, the whole bottom could fall out. 
Um, but now with the win at Georgia, South Carolina, if they beat Florida, can get right back in the thick of things for the SEC East, particularly if Missouri remains on probation. Uh, man, you know, um, so this one's st- setting up to be really, really huge. Uh, and I'm sort of glad now that it's it's in terms of this season and what the team can accomplish rather than, you know, can the Will Muschamp era be salvaged or, or whatever. So uh, just a gigantic South Carolina-Florida game this weekend uh, at Williams-Brice. Yeah, no question. And I, I think, you know, there's probably no team on the schedule that, that Will Muschamp gets more fired up to play. Uh, than Florida, given his history with the program. I know he would probably never say that publicly, but uh, I don't think there's any question this game means a little bit more to him. And and I think he's, you know, I think he'll have his team ready. And I think, uh, you know, the improved play on the defensive side of the ball gives South Carolina a chance to win this game and, and a chance to, to really give Florida's offense some problems. And you go back to the matchup between these two teams last year in Gainesville. It was a game that South Carolina never should have lost and they had a, a team on the field that day that was extremely shorthanded from an injury standpoint, uh, and yet you know South Carolina looked like the better team for the majority of that game. Now, I understand some of the players are different this year. Uh, Kyle Trask is the quarterback, not Felipe Franks, and you know, some different faces at running back for Florida, but uh, I think the matchup is still pretty similar, and I think you, when South Carolina's players – went back to watch the film from last year's game. I know it had to sting because it was a game they had in their grasp and blew it in the fourth quarter. Um, so this is their chance for revenge. They get to do it in front of what figures to be a, a, a very fired-up crowd at Williams-Brice Stadium coming off the Georgia win. Even though it's a noon game, I would have to think the fan base is going to do its part. And uh, if South Carolina can get off to a good start and get that crowd into the game, uh, I think it, it has a chance to be a, a pretty hostile environment for Kyle Trask and, and that Florida offense. Yeah, I, th- I think the loudest noon kickoff at Williams-Brice I've ever been to was uh, Florida in 2005. Uh, Spurrier's first year, Gamecocks, of course, won that game. But that was that was a nooner, but it was, it was loud. Of course, this game this year is kind of in a different spot on the schedule. They usually play Florida in November. Uh, it's usually the last SEC game. That's not the case this year. It's kind of in the middle of the season. But, yeah, last year's game was just a brutal, brutal loss, and it was one – that I think changed the trajectory of both programs uh, for the short term. Uh, I I think South Carolina wins that. You're not hearing about Dan Mullen in Florida and how great they are all offseason. It may be the Gamecocks that end up in the Peach Bowl. Um, Because at the time, Florida had lost to uh, Missouri at home by 21 and had gotten blown away by Georgia, and they lost to Kentucky at home. And You know, Gamecocks hold on there. I think it's a a different narrative. But – there's a chance for redemption here. I think South Carolina's defense matches up well against Florida's offense to a certain extent, especially on the lines of scrimmage. Uh, I'll say this, though. It, it, they do have a different type of deal. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not just going to throw it down the sidelines like Georgia did and run the ball. I mean, they've got some things with movement and motion and power runs and runs on the perimeter and things like that I think South Carolina has to be aware of. Uh, this weekend uh, in Columbia. So I think it is a little bit different in terms of scheme, but I do think – I like the Gamecocks' D-line against uh, Florida's offensive line. I think it could be very disruptive. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's going to be key. You know, with Kyle Trask, he obviously, you know, is somewhat tested and he played at LSU last week at night. 
Uh, you know, there's probably not a more hostile environment in the conference, maybe the country, than playing in Baton Rouge at night. Uh, so he knows what he's going to be in for. Uh, but I, I think if South Carolina's defensive line can play the way it did against Georgia and be disruptive, win that battle up front against Florida's offensive line, uh, I think that only you know increases their chances of playing really well defensively, increases their chances of forcing turnovers, making some game-changing type plays defensively. And then on the other side of the ball, you look if, if Florida is going to be without both starting defensive ends, uh, I think that that makes you feel a little bit better about South Carolina's chance to match up with them on the offensive line. And if they can win both lines of scrimmage, they've got a really good shot of winning this football game. Of course, everybody's talking this week about Ryan Holinsky's health. Uh, Muschamp says today it was somewhat coy, but he did say uh, Holinsky practiced and Joyner practiced. He did say Holinsky had not been cleared, but he would be cleared. I, I don't – you know, people get frustrated with Muschamp about injuries and, and what he says to the media, and, and I'll say two things. Number one, that's never going to change. Um, number two, uh, in this situation, I, I think that it's – it's probably smart because you do have two different types of quarterbacks that you can run out there for them. Um, I think, obviously, if Holinsky's able to go and, and throw it well, that only helps South Carolina's offense. Um, I think they can get into some RPOs and some things like that against Florida like they did last season. They just need to adjust when they have to adjust. Um, I think they can run the ball like they've done against – I mean, A.J. Turner and Mon Denson have run all over Florida the last two years. <laughs> People don't talk about that. And those guys, you know, you got Dowdle and Feaster now. Um, so, I think that. Uh, one thing I do believe, though, totally is, Tony, if it is DeCarry and Joyner, you know, I know he was kind of thrown to the wolves against Georgia. They didn't want anything to mess it up. But, but I think there's got to be some specific planning for him. Uh, in terms of giving him more run options, making him, you know, an extra runner in the backfield to make Florida account for him um, and, and things of that nature. I, I understand that he's capable of running the whole offense, but I think you can take advantage of some things with him as a runner uh, against the Gators, um, having a week to prepare rather than just kind of how they had to throw him out there against Georgia. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, I don't know that they were necessarily prepared – uh, for for Joyner to play that many snaps against Georgia, uh, if you if you know going into this game you're going to need him more, uh, I think they have to change their offensive game plan with him. You know, run more zone read, run more you know run options, or run throw options where you get him out on the edge and and let him you know make an easy decision on whether to to throw it into the flat or down the field or or take off and run with it and and try to put as much pressure on Florida's defense as possible and 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 keep the chains moving. I'll also say I thought Joyner looked a step slow against Georgia. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's if it could be that his hamstring is still bothering him some. That obviously limits his effectiveness if he is a step slow. Uh, but, you know, hopefully for Gamecock fans and the team, if he's better uh, this week, a little bit healthier, a little bit faster, that, that helps. Um, but, you know, Joyner did a good job of, of just managing the lead, managing the ball and not putting it in, in jeopardy and not trying to be a hero against Georgia. If he is the guy who has to play extensively against Florida, they're going to need more from him. They're going to need him to make some big plays with his feet. They're going to need him to complete passes down the field and, and show he can see the entire field and and uh, and make the kind of throws that keep those receivers involved in the game. And then 
you know, use the running game to, to build off of that. But, uh, you know, but it'll be interesting to see how they manage it. But I would agree with you that they, they have to do some things differently when he comes in the game and, and, and put him in a, a position to, to use his strengths uh, versus just, you know, going out there and managing the game. All right, fans, don't forget Tony Morrell's Five Keys to Victory will be on TheBigSpur.com later this week. I'll be back with you with uh, The Final Word, which is also a, a kind of a written article and also a short podcast to kind of give you my prediction here on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. You can also get this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, um, 24-7 Sports, just about wherever you find podcasts you can find us. All right, so I got two players that, that – Without going quarterback, which is the obvious, um, two players, one offense, one defense, that I think, you know, need to have really good games. I'm going to go Rico Dowdle because I think Tony Rico Dowdle is playing not just up to the level he was playing as a freshman. I think he's better. I think he looks leaner, looks more explosive, faster. And it's been this way just about the whole year now. Um, So, we used to have some inconsistent Rico. I think we're getting consistent Rico – you know, 79 yards on 21 carries isn't going to blow anybody away. But in that Georgia game, he had some big-time runs. Um, and he's, his vision looks better. I mean, everything about him looks better. So, I'm going to go with Rico Dowdle because regardless of what happens at quarterback, I think Dowdle can get yards, especially against the Todd Grantham defense that sometimes just, you know, you can run right by him. Uh, and then defensively, I was going to go with Sherrod Green. But I think I'm going to go with T.J. Brunson because – Florida kind of likes to attack the weak side of the field in space. They're going to get on the perimeter. Uh, I think that's it's important for Brunson not to get sucked in and not to give up something where, you know, Florida gets the ball out to one of their faster players, either P. Ryan running back or, or Kendarius Toney or, you know, Grimes or Jefferson or whoever on the perimeter. And then he's sucked in and then it's a, it's a race or sprint to the end zone. Um, reverse, you know, they ran a, a nice reverse to Hammond uh, against Kentucky as well. So those are my two guys I think need to have good games for the Gamecocks to be successful. Yeah, I can't argue against either of those. I, I think Dowd would probably be my choice uh, offensively as well if I had to pick one. Defensively, I, I'll, I'll stick with Javon Kinlaw. I, I think he is the, the tone setter for South Carolina's defense. I think everyone feeds off of how he plays. And I think it's it's a matchup that that should be pretty favorable to him against Florida's offensive line. Has had some issues this year. Uh, I think if he can can continue to be disruptive and and get into the backfield and change the direction of running plays, uh, continue to pressure Kyle Trask and just do the things he's been doing all year. Uh, I think that only helps everyone else around him. It helps the linebackers. It helps the other defensive linemen. The ends helps the secondary. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll stick with Ken Law as the guy that, that, that needs to continue to, to set the tone for this defense. All right. High noon kickoff uh, nationally televised by ESPN. Uh, the Gamecocks play the Gators this weekend. All right. For Tony Morrell, this is J.C. Sherbert. This has been the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Don't forget to join us later this week and uh, check out Tony's five keys to victory on the big spur. <laughs>